Hi friends, I hope we're all doing well today. My name is Anna, and welcome back to my true crime podcast, Sign of the Crimes. Now, before I get into the true crime, uh, there is a little bit of housekeeping, so let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. So first off, sorry I don't really have a regular upload schedule. I can't exactly promise one, but I will put out episodes as frequently as I can. But I do kind of need to give myself some time to kind of distance from this because it is a really heavy subject matter to be talking about. And second, when I was looking for my own podcast on Spotify just to make sure I did the upload correct and everything went smoothly, I found that there's another podcast with a very similar name, which is Sign of the Crime. And uh, here I was thinking I was so clever and original. But anyway, what I wanted to say here is, if it's okay with them, it's okay with me. And finally, you may notice that yet again the music is different this time. Because like I said previously, I'm still just experimenting, seeing what works for me and what feels right and what I like best. So I would love to hear what music you like best, what you think works for me. And now with all of that being said, that's it for the housekeeping. So let's go ahead and get to the true crime. This one is quite upsetting. I mean, they all are, but this one has really affected me for a very long time. I first learned about it when I was very young. I stumbled across it on the internet somehow and it just really stuck with me. So I feel like I really do need to talk about this more and share this story. So in this case, there are themes of sexual assault, pedophilia, and the death of a child. So if that's not something you think you can hear right now, I completely understand and I would recommend skipping this one. Now for everyone who is still here, you have been warned. Hi, Anna from the future here, just dropping in to say that, as I've said, this is a very emotional case for me, and there will be times where I get emotional and have some difficulty holding myself together, so I just want to apologize in advance for that, and I hope it's not too distracting. Alright, now that that's out of the way, we can go ahead and resume your regularly scheduled programming. For our story today, we are going to Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where on Monday, September 14, 1992, Holly Maria Jones was born to George Stonehouse and Maria Jones. Holly's zodiac sign was a Virgo, and she was described as a happy, energetic, and gentle child. Holly lived with her parents and half-siblings at 242 Sterling Road. Holly loved music, and some of her favorites were Britney Spears and, like a true Canadian, Celine Dion. She took voice lessons at her local community center and would always try to practice and perfect her vocal range to sing Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. Like many children, Holly was quite a picky eater and if it wasn't from McDonald's or made by her mother, it would be very difficult to get her to try something. 
While listening to her favorite radio station, Holly would often call the number to try to get on the air and say something funny, which I think is so adorable, so early 2000s. And Holly and her friends would even talk about starting their own girl music group one day and calling it the Evil Angels. On Monday, May 12, 2003, Holly had her friend Claudia over to her house to play after the school day ended. Claudia was just a year behind Holly in grade 4 at St. Luigi. Eventually, it came time for Claudia to go home for dinner, and so Holly wanted to walk her home because she was only 9 and Holly was 10. It wasn't that far and it was still light outside. It was a relatively short distance along Perth Avenue and this was one of very few streets that Holly was permitted to travel on her own. George and Maria had made sure to street-proof Holly. She knew not to go beyond the immediate area of her home, not to go anywhere with strangers, and not to enter a car unless it was being driven by someone on a specific list of parents' friends or family friends. And so on this evening of May 12, 2003, so right in the middle of tourist season, Holly was last seen after walking her friend home, walking back to her own home. Holly's mother, Maria, who had been out at the grocery store, arrived around 8 p.m. to find that her daughter, Holly, was not there. Maria was immediately concerned because Holly was not allowed to be outside alone at night. And so immediately she called her husband, George, who was just across the street at a neighbor's house. He had not seen Holly either since earlier when he saw Holly and Claudia walking past that house while Holly was walking Claudia home. Maria then indicated that she would start calling around in an attempt to find Holly's whereabouts. But around 8.30 p.m., George received another phone call from Maria who was frantic in saying that she still had not found Holly. And so George went home so he and Maria could continue searching for Holly. Ultimately, at 9.14 p.m., Maria called the Toronto Police Service reporting Holly's disappearance. A missing person investigation was immediately put in motion, and officers from 11 Division attended the residence at Sterling Road to take an occurrence report. As it had already been hours since this 10-year-old girl had been seen, police launched an intensive search for her in the vicinity of her home and throughout her neighborhood. Copies of a photo of Holly were distributed throughout the community and her description was broadcast through the Toronto Police Department Communication Center to alert all officers on duty of the situation. And what poor George and Maria didn't know was that Holly, their 10-year-old baby, was already gone. Early the following morning, Tuesday, May 13th, 2003, with Holly still missing, the Toronto Police Force requested an Amber Alert be issued. But tragically, just hours later, two bags were found, both containing body parts. At approximately half past 8 a.m., the Toronto Police Service received a phone call from a resident of Wards Island who reported that while he was out walking his dog, he had discovered a bag 
which contained what he believed looked like a dismembered human torso. This caller was then asked to wait at the island ferry docks so police could arrive and he could direct them to the scene where he had found this bag. Not long after, two marine unit constables headed over to Ward's Island operating a marine unit vessel to meet up with this caller. This man then told police again that at approximately 8.15 that morning, he had been walking his dog along the north shore of the island and discovered a black bag on the shoreline at the water's edge. Inside this black gym bag was a green garbage bag, which then contained a clear plastic bag. And inside this clear plastic bag was what he thought was a human torso. These two police constables were then directed to the bag. This black gym style bag, which bore a logo of the word Lynx. Inside this bag was what was confirmed to be a human torso, positioned face down with the back area exposed by a tear in the plastic bag. The constables noted that there were no visible footprints in the area other than the man who had found this bag while walking his dog. Subsequently, officers from 52 Division Investigative Office arrived at the scene and took a closer look at the contents of this bag. The torso was confirmed to be that of a young Caucasian female. It was not decomposed and had been badly cut. Hairs and other fibers were present on the shoulders and buttocks. Inside one of these plastic bags was a yellow cloth with the letter J printed on it, and a second similar item was found on the ground next to this bag. The plastic bags containing this torso were placed onto a stretcher and then transported to the coroner's office. After this horrendous discovery was made was when the Toronto Homicide Unit got involved, working with the Sexual Crimes Unit investigating the disappearance of Holly Maria Jones the night before. At approximately 2 p.m. later that day, May 13th, more officers were dispatched over to that shoreline to search for more parts or clues. It was during this very search that a police constable discovered a piece of travel luggage floating handles up in the water. When opened, this piece of travel luggage contained a five-pound dumbbell, a knotted green plastic garbage bag, and inside of this green garbage bag were two others. One of these inner bags contained four cloths with that J printed on it, and they were soaked in blood, along with the top of a sponge mop and an intact right arm and hand. The other inner bag contained a similarly intact left arm and hand and a severed human head. Now, I'm sure we all saw it heading in this direction, but these were the dismembered body parts of 10-year-old Holly Maria Jones. Now, at 2.15 that afternoon, forensic pathologist Dr. Toby Rose carried out the post-mortem examination of the four dismembered body parts of Holly Maria Jones, which had been contained in the Lynx and Cherokee brand bags.
Molly's legs and feet have never been recovered. Findings during this autopsy included a ligature mark on the neck which was determined to be her cause of death. She died of ligature strangulation. There was also bruising of the strap muscles of the neck underlying and adjacent to the ligature mark, all of which were consistent with the cause of death again being ligature strangulation. Also documented was the post-mortem decapitation and dismemberment of the head, torso, arms, and legs, which again, her legs were never found. There had also been signs of injury to the pelvic region of Holly's torso, consistent with sexual assault, including abrasions to both lower body cavities. A forensic anthropologist and tool mark examiner then examined the body parts and concluded that the instrument used to dismember Holly was a manual, non-powered handsaw with a straight blade. In accordance with routine procedures in post-mortem exams, numerous body samples and materials were collected by pathology and members of the Forensic Identification Service. These items included oral, vaginal, and rectal smears, fingernail cuttings, and samples of hair and fibers detected on the body parts. These samples were used to generate findings which proved to be crucial in the outcome of this investigation. No semen was found on the swabs taken from the vaginal and rectal smears. However, underneath her fingernails was a DNA profile that had come from an unknown male donor. The fiber samples collected from Holly's remains included coarse green fibers of the type which would be expected to be an inexpensive carpeting or a bath mat. Investigators then created a pre-typed questionnaire for police to dispatch and ask residents in the surrounding areas to try to narrow down the search for who had done this to 10-year-old Holly Maria Jones. This questionnaire contained also DNA request forms and officers were asked to seek voluntary DNA samples from every male that they encountered. Now this is where we introduce a new character to our story. This predator, this loser, this absolute fucking pile of garbage that is Michael Briere. Now, Michael Briere lived in the main floor of a house that had been divided into four apartments, and Holly would have passed this home on her walk back to her own residence. Michael Joseph Briere was born in Montreal, Quebec on October 1st, 1967, making him a Libra. Now, I found a description of him which I absolutely love because I have seen pictures of this loser and I feel very strongly that even someone who hasn't could envision him perfectly based on this description, which is a plump 35-year-old computer software developer with a receding hairline and a rabbity twitch to his facial features. However, according to his ex-wife, Vicky Lee Bolduc, he was a charmer and a bodybuilder at the time they met. Shortly after they married, he became a couch potato and computer geek and sat on his ass all day watching slasher films and playing Final Fantasy. 
The two divorced in 1997. During his visit from officers on May 21, 2003, Michael indicated that he did not know Holly Maria Jones or any members of her family, that Holly Maria Jones had never been in his apartment, he did not own a motor vehicle, he had never owned any Lynx nor Cherokee brand luggage or bags. During the evening of Monday, May 12, 2003, he had been in his residence working on his computer and had no visitors that evening. He also said that he did not know who was responsible for the disappearance and murder of Holly Maria Jones. When officers requested a voluntary DNA sample from Michael Briere, he said, and I quote, If I can explain why. No, I feel that it puts the onus on us to prove that we're not guilty, that Big Brother is watching us. He did, however, allow a search of his apartment. Findings from this search in his apartment included a large bottle of cleaning fluid under the kitchen sink, two green bath mats, an empty bucket in the bathroom, green carpeting throughout the bedroom, a trunk containing cast iron weights in the bedroom, and two cast iron dumbbells beside the bed. Now this is interesting, when asked how he cleaned his floors, Michael responded, I don't use a mop. As officers concluded their interview and began getting ready to leave, he said to them, I hope you'll understand even though I didn't give DNA, I hope that you get the guy responsible. Officers also spoke to the other occupants of the house, all of whom gave voluntary DNA samples. After Michael had declined to give a voluntary DNA sample, investigators began watching him as of May 26, 2003, with the goal of collecting a discarded bodily sample, as in like maybe a water bottle or something, that could be used to generate his DNA profile. This was perfectly legal because once you throw something away, it becomes public property. The next contact the task force had with Michael was on May 30th. On that day, team members met with him and asked if they could just properly explain the DNA sample process. This is where an officer asked Michael if he recalled speaking with officers the previous week about the murder of Holly Maria Jones, which he confirmed. This officer also indicated his understanding that he had declined to provide a sample of his DNA, which Michael confirmed was correct. This officer then asked if he could just run through the DNA sampling process to make sure it had been properly explained to him, which Michael agreed to. He was also informed that any DNA sample that he would provide would only be used with the current investigation and that any resulting DNA profile generated would not be kept in any type of database in future investigations. This officer then further assured Michael that under law, it required the destruction of the DNA sample once it was determined that it held no significance to the investigation. This officer then explained that all samples taken and submitted for analysis were identified only by a number and that the lab generating the DNA profile would not know who it belonged to unless it was confirmed to be significant to the investigation. 
Michael continued to decline providing a sample of his DNA. The officer acknowledged that it was his right to refuse, but asked if he would mind giving a reason why he chose not to do so. Michael responded that he did not trust police and that he had once worked for a large corporation and knew, quote, how things went, unquote. Michael was otherwise cooperative and gave the officers permission to once again view the inside of his apartment. Officers noticed several toys on his fireplace mantle and asked Michael if any children visited his apartment, to which he replied that no children had ever been there and that the toys were his. Officers then asked him directly if Holly Maria Jones had ever been inside his apartment, to which Michael responded, of course not. They then asked where he had been on the night that Holly Maria Jones died. Michael said that he had been home alone working on his computer. Officers then asked if he would agree to come to headquarters for an interview, to which he replied, an interview, sure, no problem. It was then agreed that they could call Michael the following week and arrange an appointment for the interview. As they were leaving, officers asked where he thought investigators should be looking for evidence related to this case. Michael responded that he thought they should look by the GO railway tracks and by the stairs near the station which he described as quote, a perfect place to ambush somebody. During this second look around of Michael's apartment, investigators noticed in the bathroom a shower stall with no curtains, no bath mats, and green colored towels. In the kitchen on a chair, a new beige shower curtain, a beige bath mat, and under the sink liquid cleaning solution. In the bedroom, a green towel on a laundry hamper, and a few weights in a trunk and under his bed, and green plastic garbage bags on the floor of his closet. On Wednesday, June 4th, 2003, via a phone conversation, Michael Briere agreed to attend 12 Division to be interviewed on the morning of Friday, June 6th, 2003. He arrived at the station at 10.55am, was then shown into the superintendent's office, where officers proceeded to conduct a recorded interview with him, which began at 11.21am and finished at 12.36pm. During this interview, Michael stated that he was alone working on his computer during the evening of May 12. He heard about the disappearance of Holly Maria Jones on the news, but that he did not recognize her picture, she had never been in his residence, he had never seen her before, and he had nothing to do with her murder. He also stated that he had recently changed his shower curtain from a dark green one to a yellow one, and his bath mats from yellow ones to beige. He then declined again to provide a consensual sample of his DNA. When asked if he understood the process of DNA analysis, this was his response. Quote, I don't have the scientific understanding of what happens, but bottom line is that I'm pretty sure that the science works. And you know, when they compare samples, they can tell if it's the same person or not, which is for me, the scary part. That's the thing, it's too much information. At the conclusion of this interview, the following questions were asked to Michael Breer. Have you told us everything that you need to tell us for today? And is everything you told us the absolute truth? To which he responded, yes. And then, so we don't have any concerns about Michael as far as being involved with this horrible murder. 
to which he responded, no, I don't think so. Officers then asked him, so we can move on in our work and try to find the killer. Michael responded, yes. Then asked, and when we find the killer, what do you think should happen to a person like this? Somebody who would commit such a heinous crime. To which Michael responded, well, I mean, you arrest him and you put him away. He was then asked, what do you think would be an appropriate punishment for a person who murdered Holly? To which he said, like I have just mentioned, you arrest him, you put him away, you put him away for good. Less than an hour later, Michael was observed walking on Keel Street while holding a can of Pepsi Cola. A few minutes after he was seen throw the can away into a recycle bin adjacent to the front of the subway station. When he continued to walk onto Bloor Street West, a surveillance team member seized two Pepsi cans from that recycle bin. They were then turned over to task force investigators. Observation of Michael continued, and later that same afternoon, Friday, June 6, 2003, he was seen as he met with a woman known to the task force to be his girlfriend at the entrance of a subway station, and the two then entered into a mall. They then went into a Kentucky Fried Chicken outlet where they were watched as they bought, ate, and then disposed of food and drink. The garbage was seized by a member of the surveillance team and sent over to task force investigators. It included two Pepsi Cola drinking cups and straws, which were believed to have been used by Michael Briere and his friend. On June 18th and 19th, Biologist Alexandra Welsh reported the following results to the task force, that blood had been detected within the fingernail cuttings from the hands of Holly Maria Jones. A DNA profile had been determined from a swab of the blood-stained right fingernail clipping, which was a mixture of DNA from at least two individuals. Assuming a dual source, one being contributed by Holly Maria Jones, the DNA profile from the minor source had been determined. This minor source had come from a male donor and was sufficient for comparison purposes. Swabs of the discarded Pepsi cans and parts of the straws from the discarded cups were tested through DNA analysis to determine if a profile suitable for comparison could be generated and if the donor could be excluded as the source of the male DNA profile found under the fingernail clippings of Holly Maria Jones. A partial male DNA profile was detected on the swab of one of these discarded Pepsi cans. This male donor could not be excluded as the source of the male DNA profile from the fingernail clippings of Holly Maria Jones. The probability of these two DNA profiles coming from two different individuals was an estimated 1 in 220,000, which is not particularly solid evidence because there are over 7 billion people in the world, meaning that there are 32,000 other people that it could potentially belong to that could not be excluded. The straw was then tested to see if the donor could be excluded as being the same person who sourced the male DNA profile from the discarded Pepsi can. The probability of the DNA profiles from the can and the straw coming from two different people was an estimated 1 in 3.3 billion. 
meaning that there is only one or two other people that it could belong to, meaning it was definitely the same person. Because Canada's population in 2003 was an estimated 31.64 million, and the odds of those two samples not belonging to the same person was one in over three billion. It was at this point in the task force investigation that a warrant would be applied for to search Michael's residence once again and probable cause to arrest him for the murder of Holly Maria Jones. Since Michael had been under observation, investigators had a pretty decent idea of his daily routine and at approximately 5.40 a.m., officers waited at the subway station waiting for his arrival. At nearly 6 a.m., he appeared and was arrested for the murder of Holly Maria Jones. He was handcuffed to the rear and placed in the back seat of a police car for transport to 12 Division. Michael was read his rights and along with the police car, he left the scene of the arrest at 6 a.m. He was then driven to 12 Division, arriving 10 minutes later without any conversation taking place on the way there. Upon arrival, he was booked into the station and at 6.28 a.m. he was placed into an interview room where investigators then informed him that things had changed since their interview on June 6th and that investigators now had more information, more particularly that his DNA was found under Holly's fingernails. When Michael responded that that was ridiculous, officers reviewed the DNA evidence with him telling him that foreign DNA had been found on Holly's body. Samples of his DNA had been obtained from a discarded can and straw, that the DNA found on Holly's body matched his discarded DNA samples, and that investigators now knew who was responsible for the murder of Holly Maria Jones. Michael was then asked if he would help investigators recover Holly's legs so that her family could bury all of her. For about a minute, he was silent until he looked up with tears in his eyes and said, quote, You can't find them. I put them in the garbage. When asked what garbage, Michael responded in front of his house. It was picked up on Wednesday morning. They had been too late searching and that her legs were too long, so he had cut them up. Michael then agreed to make a full taped confession without a lawyer present, despite understanding his rights, and that he did not mind telling officers everything. To which I say, about damn time. Later on this day, Michael gave a full confession in great detail. The following is a quote from his confession. On the 12th, I had always had this fantasy of having sexual relations with a little girl, so I just got carried away and I walked outside, and Holly was, I didn't know her, I'd never seen her before, it's just coincidence. If she wouldn't have been on the street corner, I probably would have just walked the street and gone back home, but she was there and there was nobody around. I, I'm sorry, that just, that sickened me to say out loud. He then admitted to going over to Holly and grabbing her by the throat. She did not scream and was in total shock, and he began walking her towards his home. During this walk, she did try to scream just a little, 
to which in response Michael put his hand over her mouth. They then went inside Michael's apartment where he locked the doors behind, took her to the bedroom, undressed them both, and sexually assaulted her in both lower cavities. Michael claims that he did not assault her to completion, which was confirmed by the lack of semen being found at Holly's autopsy. It was at this point where Michael knew that there was no going back, and so he strangled her on his bed. And it just breaks my heart that she was probably so scared during the final few moments of her life, and that Michael, this absolute fucking loser, was the last face she ever saw in her short little life. He then put her body inside his fridge while he panicked and tried to figure out how to dispose of her body. He then pretended to leave his apartment and came back a few minutes later because at this point he wasn't sure if Holly was dead or if she had just been knocked out. After coming back, he saw that she had made no attempt to leave the fridge and it was at this point where he knew she was gone. He then gathered Holly's clothes into a bag, went to the subway, and rode it to an alleyway near a lottery ticket place. They have a place where you can go and pick up your winnings, he says. So there is an alleyway, there's actually stores there, and there was an open garbage can, and I threw the clothing in there. He then went into a store at the corner of the street that hands out newspapers, took a few and put them over the bag of the discarded clothing so no one would see it and wonder what it was. He then returned home and knew at that point that he had to dispose of Holly's body. He had this large gym bag in which her torso was later found and tried to fit her entire body inside this bag and couldn't because she was too big as he did not have a vehicle and there's no way to just carry around a dead body because people are going to be like, what the hell? He then remembered that he had a small handsaw and thought, well, I guess I'll just dismember her. He then ripped open some garbage bags on his kitchen table since he knew there would be blood and did the whole thing at once because he wanted it to be over with. He started with her arms and then decapitated her and then cut her legs and put them all in different garbage bags. After dismembering this innocent 10-year-old girl, he put the torso in the two plastic bags and then in the gym bag and left the other parts of Holly inside his fridge. He then noticed that there was blood he'd gotten on his pants and then he went and changed clothes. He then went down to the subway station and took a subway to another location. He then said once on the train there was a woman sitting right in front of him and a young man beside her. At one point, he noticed this young man's face really change, to which he said, quote, You become quite aware of your surroundings when you are doing something like this. And he then looked down and noticed that there was a drop of blood on the train car on the floor of it that had dripped from the bag he was carrying. He then says he tried to squish this blood drop with his foot to make it look like nothing had happened, to not make it look so bad. The young man later left the train. He then inspected the seat the bag was on because after seeing the one drop, he knew there was leakage. 
He then noticed on the seat that it seemed to be smudged with blood, but it had kind of camouflaged with the color of the seat. He said that he knew what he was looking at, so it caught his eye, but he didn't think it caught anyone else's. He then took the train all the way to Union Station. He then got off and walked to the edge of the water at Toronto Harbor. He thought the bag would be heavy enough to sink, and so he just dropped it in. He then went back home and noticed a few police cars passing by and assumed that it was people searching for Holly. He says, quote, I knew now that police were really starting to look and I didn't want to be walking around with a bag at night and have somebody stop me. So for that evening, I just went to bed and the remainder of her was in the fridge. The next morning, he saw people searching and made it a priority to dispose of the parts of Holly that he still had. And so he went to his fridge, took her head and arms and put them into another bag. He felt like the weight of the bag wasn't heavy enough, and so he grabbed a dumbbell from under his bed. He said he didn't even see which one, it was just the first one his hand came in contact with. He then inspected every pocket of this bag to make sure there were no pieces of paper with his name on it or receipts of any kind. He then showered, got dressed, and left his home. He said he was going to go to the same location as the previous day, and then thought, what if somebody has found the torso where I dropped it? It's not very smart to actually go back to the same place and now try to drop something else. He then took public transportation further, all the way to Lake Ontario, where he dropped the next bag. He said at that point it didn't really look like it was going to sink, but he had thought he couldn't just start messing around with it because that would draw attention, and so he just dropped it and left. He then went straight to work without returning home. He said, I think I must have looked like a ghost. I actually had a co-worker tell me that I looked completely white, and I'm sure I looked like that. I was really shaken by it. To which I say, good. By Wednesday, he still had Holly's legs in his fridge and wanted to get rid of them and so he made the decision to put them in the garbage and let them go to a landfill. He then cut her legs into smaller pieces, saying, I think I probably cut them up in four or five pieces, put them each in their own bag and then separated them over three garbage bags, two or three garbage bags. He then put them out in his front yard and checking periodically just to see if anyone was inspecting them. He then stated he did not murder Holly because he enjoyed doing so and achieved some type of thrill from it, but because he did not want to get caught for having kidnapped and raped her. In response to the question, when did you make up your mind to kill her? His response was, quote, probably when I was walking her to my place. I think at that point, I realized it's already too late. Already at that point, I didn't want to get caught, and I already just would grab her and try to make her enter my home. He then used those cloths with the letter J on them, and the sponge mop that had been found in the bags containing Holly's dismembered body parts to clean his apartment. He took no time from work subsequent to this murder and told nobody about what he had done. He then said that he put the saw 
that he used in the dismemberment into a plastic bag and then tucked it into his waistband, took public transportation downtown, and dropped it into a box of garbage. Michael then explained to investigators that he had disposed of other items involved either in the murder or the cleanup after, including bloodied carpeting, a nylon jacket he had been wearing, a bucket that he had mopped blood with and then broken into pieces, and the green bath mats and shower curtain from his bathroom. He had put these items into a backpack and then took the backpack on public transit to an apartment building that he used to live in. He no longer had a key to this apartment building, but he was familiar with the building enough to know that he could gain entry by following someone who still lived there in through the front door. He also knew that there were garbage chutes on each floor and emptied this backpack into one of these garbage chutes. In fact, Michael was wearing the shoes at that exact moment, the same shoes that he had been wearing when he murdered Holly. Needless to say, those shoes were confiscated by the Forensic Identification Service. So Michael was really telling investigators everything because at this point he knew that his ass was grass and there was no way that he would not be going to prison for this. He then disclosed to investigators that there was a blood stain on his mattress that was Holly's blood. And when tested, it was found that the odds of this blood belonging to anyone besides Holly Maria Jones was an estimated 1 in 68 billion. Michael then accompanied officers to these dumping sites and explained how he had disposed of each item. And if you think this prick could not possibly get any worse, just you wait. Michael Briere admitted to being addicted to child pornography. He even told investigators that he had been viewing it the night that he murdered Holly. He said that viewing the material motivated him to do what he had done. He said that the more he saw it, the more he, quote, longed for it in his heart, which absolutely sickens me. He even admitted that he had been thinking about finding a girl to abduct off the street for maybe a year or two, as he said. However, he had not done anything in advance to prepare for what he did on May 12, 2003. He confirmed that he had never seen Holly before, nor did he know that she existed prior to that night, and had not picked her for any particular reason. He said that he did not want to kill a child, but had the overwhelming desire to have intercourse with a child, and called it all-consuming. He even remarked how shocked he was at, quote, the simplicity of getting material. It's close to mind-boggling. I have never understood how come the whole thing wasn't shut down just because of the nature of it. You search for the word baby and it will find stuff there. It's easy. You don't need a degree. In the summer of 2003, a mural was painted to honor Holly's memory in a park nearby her house by artists and volunteers, one of which being her older half-brother James, who was 16 at the time of Holly's murder. This mural stood for 15 years until 2019, when upcoming renovations to the park would require the mural to come down. A promise was made to Holly's family that they would find another structure or a way to honor their daughter. 
Maria Jones asked that if it was not possible to have another mural done, they would like a bench with a plaque and maybe a tree planted in honor of Holly. Now, speaking of this mural, back in 2016, along with the launch of Pokemon Go, there was actually some controversy with this mural. Um, yeah, bet you didn't see that one coming. Some members of the general public found it inappropriate that Holly's mural was actually a Pokestop in the game. Ultimately, I think that's up to Holly's family and how they think she would have felt about it. Holly's funeral took place on May 20th, 2003, exactly a week after her dismembered body was found, excluding her legs, which have never been recovered to this day. Holly's funeral was attended by hundreds, including Police Chief Julian Fatino, Toronto Mayor Mel Lastman, and Lieutenant Governor James Bartolin. At Holly's funeral, her vocal coach sang My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion in her memory. That particularly struck my heart because if you remember, that was one of Holly's favorite songs, so it's a bit of a full circle moment. In June of 2004, Michael Briere pleaded guilty to first-degree murder. At sentencing, he said, quote, I have failed as a human being. To which I say, how bold of you to even call yourself a human being. Michael was sentenced to life in prison with a chance of parole after 25 years. In the details of this episode, I will be attaching a petition to keep Michael Breer in prison, so if you have a minute, it would really mean a lot to me if you'd sign it, and I'm sure it would mean a lot to everyone who knew Holly. I uploaded this episode of my podcast on May 12th for a very specific reason, and that is because on May 12th, 2023, the day this will go up, will mark 20 years since Holly Maria Jones was stolen from her family and murdered. You may remember how at the very beginning of this episode, I said that this case has really affected me a lot. And now I'm sure you see why, because it is just so tragic. And I hope George and Maria are doing okay now, because a wound like this will never fully heal. Alright, so I think that's going to be it for me today. If you'd like to keep up with me, I will link my social medias in the details of this episode, as well as the petition to keep Michael Briere in prison. And as usual, I will be putting this up on my YouTube along with a few visuals, like pictures, that kind of thing. And if you would like to give this podcast an honest rating and follow it on your platform of choice, that would really mean a lot to me and it would really help me out. And I'm sure you've noticed that this episode was much longer than the first two. And this is the kind of length that you can expect most of the time. Some may be shorter, some may even be longer, just depending on how much information I have. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today to remember Holly Maria Jones. Bye!